Hi out there, bookcasers. Good to have you back with us. We are delighted that you're here for another one of our efforts. We're going to talk to Charles Frazier today, and I should probably allow my co-host to make a mention of herself as well. Nah, I don't need to be. I don't need to be introduced. I don't even really need to be here. You just take it away. I'm Kate Gibson. I'm the daughter. I am the co-host and the smarter of the two. <laughs> well, I won't deny that for a minute. Um, <laughs> Charles Frazier, I mentioned, he has written a new book called The Trackers. Charles Fraser, probably best known for his first novel, which was Cold Mountain, that won all sorts of awards. I think it won the National Book Award as a first novel. That's really highly unusual. Wonderful book about a character named Inman coming home from the Civil War. And his books have all had an historical background, American history. And this actually is, <laughs> it's as modern a book as he's ever written, but this one is about <laughs> the Depression a hundred years ago. But he has wonderful descriptive powers that you feel in this book. It's a good tale. I love the idea that this is the most modern. It's like Charles <laughs> Frazier goes high tech by coming to the 20th century. I loved this book. I thought that it was a beautiful portrait of America at that time. And given the fact, I mean, it, it's interesting to me that the book is about the Great Depression, America largely without hope at that time. And yet I think this book has a beauty to it that comes from almost like a go West young man optimism that is very American. And I think he does an amazing job of painting a portrait of where America is at that time. I think that's a good point. It was a very depressing time in America, and yet there's hope in this book. Frazier is very reserved in his language mm. as he talks to us, but he's also that way, I think, in his novels. Mm. He employs words carefully. His prose, I think, is very evocative. His descriptive powers are extraordinary. There's no extraneous verbiage in his writing. And I'm very interested, he tells us in this conversation, that he edits as he goes along. Mm. That's something we haven't heard from many writers. Uh, it's an interesting process that he employs. But this book gives a very good, I think, impression of the Depression in so many different parts of the country. Yeah, I think it does an amazing job, too, of talking about the WPA, which is a sort of lesser known result of the depression. I think he does an amazing job of writing about that. The characters stay with you long after the book is done. It's it's just, and I, I love where also he gets his inspiration. You'll hear in this talk where he gets his inspiration. And I think it's fantastic and it inspires me. So I loved this book. All of his novels have come from pictures that he sees, still pictures that he sees that stick in his mind. And he wonders What's the story behind that picture? Here is our conversation with Charles Frazier. Charles Frazier, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I go all the way back to Cold Mountain and have enjoyed reading your work for a long time. The new book, The Trackers. Where do you start in terms of what you're thinking about? Do you start with character? Do you start with plot? Do you start, as I suspect, with time? I tend to start with an image. With this book, it was a, a photograph made sometime during the Depression of a WPA post office mural in progress. With other books, it's just been like a picture pops into my head, and I think, who is that? What are they doing? For Cold Mountain, it was, it was a guy walking. It was just this picture of a guy walking in the woods and a sense of you know an ominous feeling behind it. I go from a, an image that can come from a photograph or frequently just out of my head. Was that the photograph that you write about in the first page of the book with the painter up on a scaffold painting right. a mural in a post office with a couple looking on? 
Yep, there was a photograph. I saw it 10 years ago at least, and I kept being intrigued by it. I wrote a whole other book in between, but I kept thinking about who those people were. There were four people. There were two two young younger guys up on a scaffold with a partially finished mural behind them. And then a, a an older man in a suit and a woman more nicely dressed. Mm. Yeah, but the two two young guys had on work clothes. Mm. And I just kept thinking, hey, what's the relationship there? I ended up dumping one of the young guys partway mm-hmm. through. And, but those three plus an old cowboy make the core of the book. It's a departure from, I mean, it's a more modern time period than you've written about previously. So I'm wondering, was there something about that? I mean, other than the photograph that just wouldn't let you go, was there something about that time period also that appealed to you? And made you want to write about the depression? Yeah. When I was young, most of the adults I knew had a rough time during the depression. They had stories and they told those stories. And my grandparents, my parents, all their friends, all my teachers in school, for the most part, had had depression stories. And with my grandparents, they were uh, really deeply engaged in sort of the progressive end of that. They were farmers. They uh, were involved in kind of organizing or at least joining in early on farmers co-op that let them buy the supplies they needed at, at better prices than from a store. They supported a really wonderful church that had a community library and summer school for the kids. And they had that that sense in a really, you know, in a time that that feels to me like it wouldn't have had a huge amount of hope. They had a huge amount of hope that if they worked in the right direction, if they educated their kids, if they introduced their kids to culture to the best of their ability, that things would get better. So I wanted some of their some of their sense of life to get into this book. When I was in sixth grade, a very inventive teacher that I had would bring in Saturday Evening Post, if anybody remembers that magazine, would bring in covers from the Saturday Evening Post, many of which were done by Norman Rockwell. And then she would ask us to write a creative story around that picture that was on the cover. And I thought that was a wonderful teaching technique. In retrospect, when I think back on it, I think it's even better. But I'm fascinated that you take a picture and you create a novel from it. Those characters that were in that picture, you create into this novel. And those people become Val and John and Eve. And you take it from there. You, your book comes from a picture. That's interesting. I'm curious as to how you do that, what process you went through in creating character. You know, I just kind of live with that image with, I guess it was my third novel, Nightwoods. I just had a picture of this young woman standing on the porch of a um, a lodge or a, a hotel, an old hotel or a, or what it was. But it was just this young woman standing on on a porch and nobody else around. And it took took years to think. Okay, who is she? What is? Why is she there? What all of that? Who are the people around her? Um, it just creates a situation that then I can build imagination around. 
We've talked to a lot of authors about whether or not they are, you know, whether they write by the seat of their pants or whether or not they're a careful plotter. Once you have, once you're like, okay, those are my characters. I mean, do you, are you a seat of the pantser or do you have everything outlined before you sit down? I think I must be a seat of the pantser. I had an editor at one point who said, and she did not mean this as a compliment, uh, she said, you are the most intuitive writer I've ever worked with. <laughs> so I guess I, I don't do a lot of planning. One of the things that you think about as a reader is, can he pull off an ending? Can he end this the right way? And I thought you ended the trackers perfectly. It's exactly what I sort of hoped would come out. Did you know when you began what that ending would be? No, uh, I didn't. Uh, maybe maybe three-fourths of the way through, I was getting a feel for what I, want, what I wanted to do and especially what I didn't want to do with the ending. And that sometimes that works better for me just to know what I don't want to do. And then I can think about the, it, it narrows it down and, and I can work within a, a frame but not be constrained. Let me ask the question a different way. What I thought was so good, the, the principal characters are John and Eve and Val. And I thought, can he come up with an ending that is true to those characters? When you said you didn't want to do something, you didn't want to in any way change the nature of those characters to be true to the, you wanted an ending that would be true to the nature of the characters? Yeah. Yeah. And Eve, I always thought of Eve as the main character of the book, that there are these triangles in the book, I like to kind of think in geometric terms. And there are these triangles of characters, but Eve is always, she's the thing that makes the triangles. She's the, mm. she's the main point in each, each one of the triangles. And I especially wanted her to, I wanted her ending to be, to be true to her. That's the one that I worked on the most mm. and thought about the most. She is the connective tissue. When you make a decision about, I'm interested to talk to you a little bit about the language choices you have to make once you choose a time period. In this more modern one, how did you go about approaching the language for this versus something that you would do in, say, 13 Moons or Cold Mountain? The more modern one being the Depression 100 years ago. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. But, but for you, that's modern, Charles. <laughs> um, well, I was trying to channel voices from people that I knew growing up when I was a kid. We lived in a really small town two hours west of Asheville, and there were all, all kinds of people there. It was a, a very oddly diverse town. And so I thought about, you know, the way the country people talk, the way the, the, the banker talked in town, the way the doctors talked. I, I try, to, try to remember those those patterns and vocabulary. And it's so much for me of writing a novel is memory, is accessing memory. And with this one, I couldn't go out. Normally, I go out and do essentially location scouting. And because a lot of the book was written during COVID, I couldn't do the kind of travel that I was planning to do. Uh, so I have to just access memory of those places we lived in Colorado for most of the 80s or a lot of the 80s, and uh, I've been out in Wyoming a lot. We had a relative there all the way back into the 60s, the late 50s even. So I, I just trying to get those memories back in the front of my mind was, 
was part of the job. One of the things, obviously, the book is a lot about the depression, the depression in so many different areas, how it affected Florida, Wyoming, uh, Washington State, California. But when I was talking to Kate, she said to me, and I should let her voice the question. She said to me, Dad, I think this book is a lot about manifest destiny. What do you mean by that, Kate? That it had a sense for me of go west, young man. There was an optimism about the unmapped territories. Was that intentional? I mean, did you, that was what I took from it. That was my interpretation. I'm glad that came through. That really famous essay, short book, Frederick Jackson Turner's book on the frontier in American history, that was in my mind, especially in developing the character of Pharaoh you know, who who lived through, who's a representative of the Wild West, the sort of stereotypical Wild West. And he rejects that sense of the frontier being that shaping force in the American personality was in my mind a lot of the time on this. There's a wonderful passage in the book when they're talking about how far the road goes when Val is with Eve. And I think I, because I'm quoting it from memory, but Val talks about the road is sort of endless going west. And as they're driving down the coast, she says, no, it's not. That there is an, an Oh, end yeah, the it's the other Reverse way around. That. But other way around. it's the same. Yeah. yeah. She says some of the kind of hobo wisdom that she learned out on the road during the Depression was that the road goes on forever. And it makes him mad for some reason. And he's right. like, oh, hell no, it doesn't. It does not go on forever. It, it ends. You go look at the Pacific Ocean, you know the road ends. And he's being more literal than she is. But that's one that I thought about, wrote down, took notes on, and then held it till a good time to use it. Mm. Mm. I really, that to me was one of the most compelling things about the book was, I don't think there's, well, there have been the pandemic maybe being one of them, but there've been a few times in American history where people were truly hopeless. And the idea that the depression was one of them, but yet there still seems to be this optimism to the time period. That's something that you found in your research as well, yes? Yeah. I mean, that there were I mean, all of those government programs that were, in a lot of cases, just throwing out an idea and see if this helps. But we're still living with some of the benefits of those programs from then. The Blue Ridge Parkway is right mm-hmm. behind our house. That was started during the Depression as a government project. And I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people still drive portions of that every every single year. I mean, just, you can't count them all, mm. uh, all of those things that we're still getting benefits from. Well, I thought one of the interesting choices you made was to have your central character be a painter, because yeah. what Mark's Charles Fraser novels to me is your descriptive powers. And so I always felt in the trackers that I was seeing the world through the eyes of a painter who sees detail and who sees color and who sees motion in what they're looking at, all of which he tried to put in the mural that he was painting in the post office. But was that a conscious decision to make him a painter and therefore be a good vessel for your Powers of description. I mean, it's probably part of the reason that that photograph with the scaffolding and the partly finished painting hooked me uh, for so long is I, I am a very visual person that 
I'm more of a visual learner. I observe things a lot. I love just sitting out in the woods and just letting that soak in. A painter felt, I'm not a painter, never have been, known a lot of them, but it felt like something that was would work for me. But there's one of the most searing, I guess, or that were very clear to me in terms of his descriptive powers. The Golden Gate Bridge was just newly opened at that point. And he's sitting, looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's describing it in ways that I had never thought about. But I thought I was seeing it through a painterly eye. Glad that came through. I just tried to imagine what would it be if you hadn't seen a million pictures of it, if you hadn't seen it yourself a bunch of times, if you get to San Francisco for the first time, and there's this thing that is brand new. Cars had just been going across it for a few months at the time Val was there. Just how would that have have hit you at a time when things feel so difficult and going backwards and here's this thing that you managed to that the country managed to create out of all that difficulty and challenges i want to go back to that great tension between sort of hopelessness and cynicism and optimism it seemed to me and i i'm about to break a cardinal rule of interviewing because i hate it when interviews go seems to me what you were trying to say (laughs) because that makes me not so much an interviewer as an as an english professor but i'm going to do it anyway all apologies to English professors. It seemed to me that cynicism was a luxury for the rich in this book. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I don't know that I that I've ever put it in those terms to myself, but uh, but yeah, I can uh, I can think about uh, long, and I, I think that's that's totally valid. Mm. I enjoyed the read very much. Charles Fraser, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. The new book is The Trackers. It is, I think, a really interesting character study. It is also a good historical study of the period from many different locations. We both thoroughly enjoyed the book. Thank you. Glad you did. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Wrap-up.
rapid fire for Charles Frazier. How long was your first draft? I don't really do anything that ever would be called a first draft, um, but it was it wasn't a whole lot longer than this. I just cut things out and add things and cut them again. So it was probably about the same length as the finished book. That's commendable. (laughs) Favorite book about the Civil War? Oh, my goodness. Well, Red Badge of Courage, of course. And then there would be some others. But that's yeah, that's my favorite. And how about your favorite? You obviously do a lot of research on the periods about which you write. What is to you the most intriguing period of American history? Hmm. Well, I mean, it kind of tends to be the one I'm working on at the time. But uh, <laughs> but but yeah, all that. It's not so much the Civil War as the lead up to the Civil War. <clears throat> Those decades that ended up with the country coming apart. So Cold Mountain obviously came a sweeping film, did well at the Oscars. If you were going to cast the trackers, could you do it? And who would you put in it? Oh, golly, I've been trying to think of that. And I haven't come up with anything. I mean, I've been totally blank on that. I mean, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's one of my favorite characters, and it was was so much fun to write. And I keep thinking of an actor who's maybe around 70 who could play that. And, you know, uh, I guess I don't know how old Jeff Bridges is, but he would be be perfect. (laughs) He'd be wonderful. Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott, maybe. Yeah. I I thought Amy Adams would make a great Eve. I think she's a wonderfully, she has a broad range in what she can do. And she's got the sharpness, you know, that the sort of sharp personality or is able to do the sharp personality that Eve needs. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm. An author that you would read no matter what they wrote. Oh, gosh. Well, um, let's see. Well, Cormac McCarthy is one and Annie Dillard, somebody who over over the years, I, I would read anything that she puts out. James Lee Burke, I always buy his books. He's got a new one coming out. Revered book that you read that perhaps you wish you hadn't. I would never get far enough into it to wish I hadn't read it. (laughs) I kind of stop after after about 50 pages. Where do you do your research? That's one of the things about this book. Mostly it had to be done online, which feels like cheating to a degree to me. I, I love going to libraries. I love love going to large libraries and just spending days and days and days. I like to touch the books, all of that. So ideally in libraries. I, I was interested in the sort of the pattern you publish about every four or five years. Yeah. That's a lot of work that you do on each book. The first two or three years, I'm very self-indulgent and I'll let myself go down <laughs> these paths that go nowhere. And then in the last two years of the book, I'm, I try to be really brutal and not self-indulgent and cut all kinds of things that I really like. So we talked about your favorite Civil War book, and I'm going to widen the category even further. Favorite historical fiction book. Oh, my goodness. That is difficult. <laughs> well, I hate to even acknowledge this, but I took a copy of War and Peace to the beach one time. And... <laughs> I don't even know why I took it with me. And I started reading it. I couldn't put it down. And I felt silly walking out onto the beach to sit in a chair and read Bearing War and Peace. But it just, I couldn't put it down. (laughs) I I love the image of somebody with their feet in the water, the beach chair right on the edge of the tide. 
and he's reading War and Peace. <laughs> I felt so it, pretentious, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> I love the image. I love the image. That's a great image on which to end it, yes. Charles Frazier, a really great book. And again, a fascinating way, I think, to launch a novel reminds me as you said, of so many classes that I had where an English teacher would sort of put up a picture and say, what's going on here? And you would write about it. And in some ways, I play that game still to this day, maybe not so much with writing, but it's one of the things I do in New York restaurants. I sit in a New York restaurant and I look at the table and I go, how did those two people end up sitting together? How did these two people end up sharing a meal together? What is their relationship? So I do do it. I don't do it so much as a writing exercise, but I love that that's where he gets his inspiration. It served him very well in this book. People watching, it is interesting. And I do the same thing. I look at people and I think, how did that come about? I was in a restaurant once. I tell this story often. There was a couple having dinner together. He was on the banquette and she was on the chair facing him and they had their dinner and then dessert came and they got up and they switched seats. And I asked them when they were walking out, I stopped them and said, why, why did you do that? And they said, we don't have kids. We eat out a lot and restaurants are the best place in the world for people watching. And when I'm sitting there, I'm describing to her the people that I'm seeing and I'm making up stories about how they got there and what their relationship is, et cetera. And then we switch seats so that she can see those people and tell me her version of why those people are there and how they got together. And why. I think that's a, such a neat idea, a couple that that talks about what they're seeing in the restaurant and then switch places so that the other one can see what they've been talking about. It's kind of neat. And <laughs> it why, is. why did we get off on this? I don't, I don't know. I just know. I just because it's because it's basically providing basically what Charles Frazier does is he looks at a picture and he constructs a backstory that brings you to that moment. And for me, that's what people watching yeah, is. Yeah. It's looking around a restaurant and going, how did you guys end up eating together? What is this conversation about? That's right. It brought me back Brink, who was my sixth grade teacher, who was a wonderful teacher and brought those Saturday evening post covers in and had us write stories about them. I thought it was a real, as I mentioned to Charles, this was a wonderful way of teaching. Anyway, we don't have a bookstore this week, but we do have what is really an interesting philanthropic organization. Kate and I have gotten interested in. You should tell people about it. I should. A few years ago, I'm very good friends with a writer who's been kind enough to talk to us and who we'll talk to again over the summer. His name is J. Ryan Straddle. He and I went to college together and I just adore him. And he tutors at 826. He gives writing workshops at 826. And so when he told me about this, I said, tell me, what is 826? And he said, well, Dave Eggers, the very famous writer of a heartbreaking work, a staggering genius, basically was sitting around with some writer friends and said, oh my gosh, when we are not publishing and we are not writing, we are just dangerous. I mean, we are just sitting around doing nothing. And wouldn't it be great if we could apply our talents, what we're good at, if we could bring it to classrooms and we could help teach creative writing and in schools. And so they founded these centers all across the country and they work with kids and they teach them how to write. But it isn't just the thesis, the supporting statements, the conclusion. They teach kids to express their truths through writing, and they do it often in at-risk communities, and they get the works published. And it's really, I did some work with their branch here in Minneapolis, 826 MSP, and I've read some of their work, and I've done some homework tutoring with those kids, and I just love the organization. And so we did a piece with them for Good Morning America. We wanted to give you a chance to hear the interview with Dave Eggers and his co-founder, award-winning educator Nineveh Caligari. 
So here they are, unedited, talking about A26 and why it's so important to the kids they teach. There's nothing like seeing a student that has put their words into print exactly as they want them. They've written themselves into existence for eternity. There's nothing like it, and it's exclusive to the power of a publication. We really work at teacher's behest. So we have the great honor of going and saying to any teacher, is there some project that you've always wanted to do? We'll bring the resources. We'll bring the man and woman power. We'll pay for the publishing. We never asked the schools for a cent. We raised the money outside. So there was never a budgetary. I never went to one in 20 years, one budgetary school meeting because all of the publishing and any expenses that we had, we took care of it. So we just were asking teachers, what are your dreams? Can we help you? make that dream come true. So we're really in collaboration and trying to help teachers see those dreams to fruition. Why is publishing so important to what 826 does and what does it mean to the kids you work with? We found that so many kids, especially adolescents, middle school and high school students, they live often in a situation where there's a lot out of their control. There's so much coming at them. Maybe their, uh, you know, their lives have, you know, there's, chaotic elements to them or uncertainties or they're going through adolescence, all of the things that kids go through. If you can get your story right, if you can get it on the page exactly as your truth in a perfect, professional, polished way, and then print that book and have it on for sale in the bookstore or in a library permanently, and so many of our books are in the public libraries in the cities where we operate, That feels like, okay, my truth is out there. It cannot be altered. I get to own my story. You see a sense of calm that comes over kids when they've written their truth, when they've written their story and they've gotten it just right. In a world where so much is not within their control, they at least have control over their narrative. And so to publish it and to say you're good enough to have your story in a book that's just as professional as anything else. That's very empowering. What is the theme of the one that you're sitting in right now? And what have some of the other themes been? Because I just think the titles are so cool. I want to get a chance of the audience to hear them. Well, this is sort of a woodland creature fairy supply center. So there's a lot of mushrooms and babbling brooks and dappled light and gnomes and fairies and things like that. Idea is the same to say, you're welcome here. It's weird here. You will be understood here. And then in the back, we're going to get down to work. And so we always wanted it to be never clinical, never sterile, never sort of institutional. It has to be kind of funky, weird, welcoming, strange, because kids are all of those things. They respond to that as opposed to going into some sort of clinical atmosphere for kids that need extra help. And this is all volunteer. I mean, the kids volunteer for an after-school writing program or a weekend writing program. And then you have authors all around the country who volunteer. I'm curious. I I suspect people will know some of the names of those authors. I don't know of any authors that haven't volunteered, basically. If they live near the center in Brooklyn, which, you know, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting an author over there, you're going to run into somebody who helped at 826 New York. Same with 826 LA. The local authors are always intimately involved. They give their time. They amplify the students' work. They say, I'm listening to you. You belong next to me on stage. They'll write introductions to books. It's extraordinary. So you create this sort of lattice work of interconnected 
young authors and older authors that they say, we belong together. If you could write a curriculum that really would highlight what 826 is trying to do, what would you put in that curriculum? We did. We have published curriculum. And what we put in it was literally the most zany and joyful ideas to create enthusiasm for just generating ideas and making everyone find entry points. So we have written curriculum and now 826 National has a digitized curriculum where everyone can access it for free and be a part of it. And I think there is no limit to, there isn't the one best idea. It's really what is everybody's idea and what's going to create the joy and bring in, you know, bring in young people's voices and help them get started. So some centers, for example, just have prompts in different places. People will use a lot of theater and silliness in order to get them started so that they start to warm up and then dive further into the more serious work. We have to get away from the five paragraph essay and everything Mm -hmm. like it. That kind of rubric, rule-oriented writing is really the best way to kill a kid's enthusiasm for the art. Gotta find a looser, more joyful, more spontaneous way to get kids into the art to begin with, because it matters. They have to be heard, their voices matter, so we have to encourage that any way we can. And if it means we have to throw away that playbook and start with a different playbook, we must, because there's too much at stake to discourage even one young writer. 826, an amazing organization. I encourage you to find out more about your local branch if there is one. Now, it is time for our listeners to hear about the folks that make this podcast possible. And then a coda from Charles Frazier. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. A salute to uh, independent bookstores. That's I'm getting ready to go out on a on a book tour, and it's almost all independent bookstores, and I I just love going to those stores. And a lot of them I've been going to for 25 years. So see old friends, meet people who read books. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.